morning and welcome to Rising. We have a marvelous show for you today here at Hill TV. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. It's always a pleasure. All right, what are we talking about this morning? Well, breaking news this morning, NBC News reports that the FBI is currently searching President Biden's Rehoboth Beach home for classified documents. Let's take a look. Mika, that's absolutely right. According to three sources familiar with this matter, FBI uh, agents, as we speak, are searching President Biden's Rehoboth Beach home for classified documents. This comes, of course, after there have been a discovery of a number of batches of documents at his think tank here in Washington and also at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. This comes just after a Wall Street Journal report that the FBI also searched the president's former office at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement back in November. This is all in addition to a 12-hour search of another Biden home in Wilmington, Delaware, back on January 20th. As the president's own legal woes mount, allies to his son, Hunter, are aiming to set up a legal fund for him to beef off his team of lawyers as he prepares to mount a defense against a cascade of federal investigations and congressional inquiries. According to the union leader, Hunter Biden's legal debt is said to be in the millions, and he's not been able to sell those paintings he was working on for as much money as anticipated. So it's hard out there for a Probably. presidential <laughs> nepo baby. The, the, the shade is real. Look, Biden, you know, <laughs> Biden, too, I guess you might say his credit has always been one of the less affluent senators mm -hmm. uh, in Congress, did not enrich himself uh, in legal, illegal or illegal ways, it seems, uh, at least to the extent that other pe people in Congress have. He very famously um, got help, I believe, from President Biden paying for um, his deceased son's medical bills, uh, something that he really? used. Really? Yeah. I didn't something, know that. He, he used that antidote to demonstrate how much he empathizes with people who need health care mm -hmm. reform, even though he is, of course, absolutely not going to provide mm -hmm. said health care reform. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not surprised that there is some, you know, uh, finagling going on right now to figure out how to get his ducks in a row in order to meet these uh, legal challenges, uh, both his son's legal challenges and whatever yeah. issues. Well, I, I imagine it is situation. challenging even it's it's got to be messy for him if Biden, Joe Biden wanted to just give money to Hunter Biden to help him with mm -hmm. his defense. I mean, that is mm -hmm. going to raise flags in and of itself. Biden, Joe Biden, you know, is facing, again, scrutiny over this document stuff. D doesn't want to face scrutiny at all. Doesn't want to face any possible investigation. So has to keep Hunter at arm's length, even though it's quite clear that he cares for his son and he's worried about his son and, you know, wants to help him. Yeah. So Hunter's kind of on his own and, uh, you know, has to look into raising a legal defense fund, uh, which is something other people have done. But then, you know, who, who are you taking the money from? That can... It's, it, it's uh, it can be a predicament. What do you make of the discourse around the new troves of documents that seem to find to pop yeah. up anywhere anybody looks? You know, I've, I've heard some people argue who are familiar with the intelligence agency that some of the flippantness with which we have kind of started to discuss discuss this. Well, there's documents everywhere. Everyone seems to have documents. It's because they've overclassified these documents and it's not really a huge lapse in judgment or a personal responsibility. But I have heard some security experts say, well, when you're trained in the handling of classified documents, you are trained not to be as careless as so many people now have demonstrated that they've been and that these lessons are drilled into you about the proper handling, that you you know immediately track and trace everything that's you know been provided to you that's in your possession, the way you would handle kind of 
a nuclear football, and that really this is a, a more significant breach, even if there are now multiple people who have been exposed as having breached. I don't buy that at all. Really? I, I just I don't buy that at all. That sounds like deep state covering for itself. Mm -hmm. Say, oh yeah, no, no, we're so careful because you're you know you're in a different mindset. Mm -hmm. This is this is nuclear secrets. This is you know the the peasants can't be trusted. This stuff, so we're so careful and we're just we're automatic and robotic about it. You know, filing all these classified papers away. I don't believe that for a second. I think it is the case that they just classify way too much stuff, and you can't. And, 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 who, and you know, who's the they here that you're trained to handle classified materials very carefully? Joe Biden, members of Congress, uh, cabinet secretaries. Mm -hmm. These are all political. You know, these aren't these aren't secret agents. These are these are political figures. These are people who got you know more vote than the other guy in an election. Some of them are terrible people and liars and etc. I, I don't believe they're. So, so I'm not saying. So, so clearly, they're not going to be careful with documents anyway. But no one has yet said, here is the document that was misplaced, and this was really dangerous and scary for X reason. No one has been able to do that. They'll say they're not doing that because, you know, you got to let the investigation proceed. It's too early. But um, I am going to remain skeptical. I am going to say this is a nothing burger until I am told exactly what it was that was so precious and so secret it couldn't be stored, you know, like in Joe Biden's beer cooler or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's some- Or at Mar-a-Lago, to be clear. That was all really stupid, too. Yeah, there's something to be said about this argument that, you know, uh, Mike Pence having documents really, you know, messed everything up for Donald Trump because suddenly there was this like, nice distraction and Joe Biden, um, you know, and, and that somehow it was Mike Pence's fault. Some conservatives are mad at Mike Pence for mm -hmm. kind of voluntarily taking a look around his own, um, his own offices and finding something in a way that, like, damn the Republican, and it's now it's it's a both and. Um, but I think there's something to be said for uh, an investigation happening for all of these members and former members of Congress, because uh, it does seem like almost everybody is implicated in this. And at that point, if everybody has a classified document on hand, what does that really mean about any of it? Right. I don't think it means it. <laughs> what it means is that the people who make that designation want to shield themselves from accountability from the American people. They, they don't want these forms read. They don't want, they just don't, they just don't want, they're, 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 they have a knee-jerk, don't hold us accountable kind of attitude. Don't, don't look too closely at what we're doing. It's not your business, it's our business. That's their view, and of course that's wrong because it is our business because they work for us. Public employees work for the American taxpayers, the American citizens, the people in this country. And that's not the attitude that we, we find out time and time again that these federal bureaucracies are operating, uh, uh, they're serving their own interests. Not they, they claim they're serving national security interests, but they're actually serving the interests of growing and expanding the influence of their bureaucracy and doing what's right for their own employees, in, including in how they network to tech companies, we find out, mm -hmm. how, how, they're how they're talking to social media companies, how they're limiting the scope of, of permissible discourse. Mm -hmm. And if they're doing that, then of course they're classifying everything so that you can't read it. Like, that's their approach. Well, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday uh, by Philip Bump called the GOP effort to equate Biden and Trump on classified documents is working, you know, seeming to lament the fact that there is, you know, the, the, the critique of Trump is so diminished by the critique of Biden now. And there was a poll that asked, you know, view, if you view documents and the public views documents, uh, the documents issue as concerning um, with respect to Biden, it looks like uh, about 30% say yes, just a little bit more say yes with Trump, that it's very concerning. And it's basically 
equal between Biden, Biden and Trump, the number of people who think it's either somewhat or very concerning. So it does seem to be somewhat of a wash, which, you know— I think that's fair. It, it, I think it is look, a wash. <laughs> I, I think it is, it is worth pointing out that the reason that the Trump thing blew up the way it did and the reason why right. there was a raid was because he wasn't— complying with the investigations. He wasn't turning over the documents that had been requested, and that's why it became such a spectacle. Mm -hmm. However, Biden stepped in it by saying nobody should be president who could be this irresponsible with documents. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but right. whatever overly strong statement he made, he got out over his skis, and now he's having to you know, pay the consequences of losing all of the political higher gra high ground on this Right. One. Maybe Trump should have made that. Ar the argument he kind of landed on is that I can magically declassify things right. by thinking about it, which isn't true. But he should have just he should have just called out the 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 FBI and the deep. It said, look, they're cl they classify everything. There's nothing secret, state secrets in here, and and the whole thing is rigged against against you and against me. That's what he should have said. Yeah. He didn't really well, make that case. There's time. Trump Trump is a is a dexterous man who knows how to pivot to an <laughs> argument when convenient. You gotta give him you gotta give him credit for those rhetorical talents. All right. Well what's what's up later in the show, Brianna? Well writer Matt Thomas joins. We'll discuss why midterm data could spell potential doom for New York New York Democrats in twenty twenty four. Plus we'll get into polling showing more and more Americans believe the US is providing too much support to Ukraine. You won't want to miss that. Next, I'll tell you what's on my radar today, so stick around. What's on your radar today, Brianna? Well, Robbie, Joe Biden and House Leader Kevin McCarthy are set to have their first meeting about the debt ceiling crisis today. And even though negotiations are just beginning, I feel like most Americans are already tired of talking about it. But stay with me. I'm going to talk about an angle to this that the mainstream media regrettably leaves out. Look, I get it. The scripts are predictable. On one hand, Democrats argue that the Republicans use the debt ceiling crisis to use as an excuse to cut popular social programs under the guise of fiscal responsibility. Democrats point out accurately that conservative opposition to raising the debt ceiling isn't really ideological for several reasons. For one, Republicans have no issue voting to raise the debt ceiling under Republican administrations. It was raised 18 times under Ronald Reagan, eight times under Bush one, 11 times under Bush two. Moreover, conservative concern about the national debt comes off as bad faith when conservatives have statistically added more to the national debt than their Democratic counterparts. Bill Clinton was the last president to preside over a balanced budget, and statistically, Republicans add between 0.75 percent and 1.2 percent more to the deficit as a percentage of GDP each year compared to Democrats. Okay, part of the reason is spending sprees like Trump's tax cuts, which will add 1.9 trillion dollars to the deficit over 11 years, while its benefits accrue disproportionately to the wealthiest 1% of Americans. Now, in response, some Republicans and conservative Democrats, like Joe Manchin, argue that fiscal responsibility demands that we pay for what we spend. Fair enough. Still others, like Donald Trump, are honest, transparent, shall we say, about the fact that this isn't really about fiscal responsibility. Trump described the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip that can be used to reverse policies passed by Democrats, no matter how popular or necessary those policies are. Again, points for honesty, but let's not forget that Trump increased or suspended the debt limit three times while president, and the national debt swelled to nearly $8 trillion during his tenure at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But here is where my take might surprise you. 
I actually agree in part with the fiscal conservatives who point out that the national debt is a problem. We've just arrived at this conclusion for different reasons, and of course, I have a very different solution for solving this problem. Now first, let's get into the problem. Look at this chart showing the national debt growth since 1922. Oof, what's driving all of those bumps and exponential spikes? Well, there have been significant spikes during our self-funded wars, the first Revolutionary War, and then as you can see on the chart, World War II, but the Afghanistan and Iraq wars there at the end are correlated with the exponential spike you see around the 2002 mark, as uh, the, did the uh, 2008 recession and the COVID pandemic. And now, U.S. contributions to the war in Ukraine continue to fuel the debt crisis. If wars have been driving this crisis for so long, why does it seem like Washington politicians never suggest cuts to the military budget to rein in their debt? Well, conservatives regularly argue that the solution lies in cutting social safety net programs, like Social Security. But one glance at U.S. spending shows where the easy pickings really are, and it's not grandma's Social Security check, which she paid into her entire life and earned. It's our ballooning military budget, which comprises about 54% of all discretionary spending. Imagine looking at this pie chart and saying, we need to go after Social Security and unemployment, that little red wedge at the very tippy top there. America maintains nearly 800 military bases across the world. It spent uh, $8 trillion on a 20-year war in Afghanistan, and in the last year, approved $113 billion in aid to Ukraine. All this while America's security budget is bigger than the next nine largest countries' military budgets combined. If fiscal conservatives are serious about balancing the budget, it's obvious where they should start cutting, but that's not all. Conservatives argue that the government is spending more than they've taken in via taxes, and they're right. They're also right to hesitate before raising taxes on working people. Nobody wants that. At the same time, they're unwilling to say specifically what programs they want to cut, knowing how much constituents in their disproportionately poor southern states rely on government programs. Fights around the debt limit are politically convenient because they allow corporate conservatives to call for budget cuts in a generalized way without taking ownership for how certain cuts will devastate families and communities. But here's the thing. They're only in this double bind because corporate conservatives on both sides of the aisle are unwilling to do the more obvious thing, tax the rich. The solution to this revenue problem is in part to make the rich pay their fair share, to close tax loopholes and tax wealth over a reasonable sum. For example, Bernie's wealth tax would apply to wealth over $32 million. So, you know, don't cry for them they'll still be able to afford $10 eggs with the money they have left. And more importantly, it would generate an estimated $4.34 trillion in taxes over the next decade. One other solution that has been raised is minting a trillion-dollar coin to pay our debt. Now, modern monetary theory argues that since governments issue their own currency, they can use that power to pay off their debts. Economists, including Louise Shiner at the Brookings Institution, hardly a left-wing org there, say the, the economics are sound and that it would not lead to inflation. But pursuing that avenue doesn't detract from my general argument here that endlessly raising the debt ceiling while issuing debt to global competitors is untenable. And reining in military spending and taxing the rich are important tools we could be using to manage this crisis. One might ask, 
if the U.S. has been carrying this debt for so long, well, what's the problem anyway? Well, the problem is twofold. One is that we have to pay interest on the debt, meaning everything we pay for costs an additional premium that amounts to 15% of federal spending. The second problem is who we owe. Now, China and Japan jockey for the top spot as the largest owners of U.S. debt. Japan held $1.3 trillion in Treasury securities as of May of last year. China was right behind. And while as of now, China's fate is linked to the value of the dollar, uh, it, ha it has an interest, therefore, in holding U.S. debt, lets it cause the value of the dollar to drop and then the value of its own currency to rise and its competitively low prices for goods and services to disappear and cease to be competitive. The global financial realignment exacerbated by the proxy war with Russia may ultimately change that relationship, leaving America's economic security in the hands of one of our biggest global competitors. You see, my concern is that the enormous national debt and ever-expanding debt limit creates untenable geopolitical vulnerabilities for the United States. And for that reason, America's spending and taxing should get more in line, even if Technically, corporate Republicans are arguing in bad faith over whether to raise the debt ceiling. More concerning to me than the fight itself is the fact that it's being framed as having limited solutions that just happen to fall on the shoulders uh, of working people. Next time a politician asks you to sacrifice your parents' pension to pay for the Pentagon budget, remember there are other options, including taxing the rich and tearing up the blank checks for endless wars. So yeah, Robbie, I just actually did an interview with uh, the economist uh, Richard Wolf uh, to air on my show later this week, and the way he was explaining the connection between the military budget and our huge national debt really shook me and reminded me that that's not a part of the conversation as we hear these debates over what to do about the debt limit, what to do about the national debt. It seems like everyone's happy to pick over the corpses of the, the handful of social programs that are out there. And you look at the pie chart where half of the U.S. budget is defense spending and there's not a peep about how to make any cuts in this other realm. Well, half of, uh, what is it, of discretionary spending mm -hmm. is the uh, is the defense budget. So. We, so I agree with you. We spend far too much on defense. Our, our costly wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere are are so hypocritical from Repu you know Republicans who said they care about balancing the budget, George Bush, et cetera, and then went out and did these these policies that had tremendous downsides on many fronts. But one of one of the main ones being how they ballooned our deficit. So I, I agree with you on cutting defense spending. Actually, I think we're going to talk about later in the show today. Uh, there are some conservatives who have mm -hmm. come around on this, and it, it is a different era, and I, th I think that's good. However, it is still true that, that while, while our discretionary spending is significantly defense spending, the overall pie chart, I mean, healthcare spending and Social Security and, uh, and education spending are all larger slices of the pie than defense. Um, maybe that would, should make you one say, if we're spending, we're, how can we be spending so much money on these things and not feel like we're getting enough value out of that. That's People a good People are still going hungry. Our schools have not improved meaningfully in the last 30 years. We don't have better outcomes. We, the people are very frustrated with the kind with health care coverage and it's confusing. Absolutely. We're spending a lot of money on it, but we're not getting good results. Yeah. So tackling that might be the I, key I couldn't to agree more. It's unconscionable that Americans pay twice as much for yeah. health care as competitor countries to get yeah. less lesser quality health care than any of those other countries. Uh, and the reason is 
that we, unlike those other countries, don't have a universal uh, health care system. This is part of the argument that Bernie has always made, that it's actually a cost-saving mechanism to have uh, Medicare for all as, compare, as compared to the privatized system that we have now, where so much of our money just goes to paying the salaries of middlemen and it is extracted by these pharmaceutical companies we have a weird who mishmash. we can't even bargain with. We have a mishmash of policies that uh, is almost, the, I think, the worst It's the worst, worst of, of all worlds. worlds. Yeah. 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 Because you don't even know, like, this extra spending is going to line the pockets of the insurers, the drug yes. companies, et cetera, because you don't even know what you're being charged for yes. when you go to the doctor because you're it's being paid by the insurer. You don't even look at the bill. Yes. Sometimes you look at the bill and go, oh, my God, imagine if I had to actually pay that. Yeah. It's not a good system. And sometimes you do actually have to pay it, and, then and it's devastating. Really screwed, yeah. we, other countries don't have a such thing as a medical bankruptcy. That's an American phenomenon, regretfully. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. The 2024 race is on and gloves are coming off. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is set to announce her own bid for the president in the coming weeks, according to reporting from the South Carolina Post and Courier, solidifying herself as the first official challenger to former President Trump for the GOP ticket. Here's what Haley's former boss had to say about rumors she might run this weekend. Nikki Haley called me the other day to talk to me, talk to her for a little while. But I said, look, you know, go by your heart if you want to run. She's publicly said that I would never run against my president. He was a great president. Now, listen to what the former president had to say about a different potential 2024 challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I mean, I had governors that uh, decided not to close the state. Florida was actually closed for a very long period of time. Remember, he closed the beaches and everything else. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> they're trying to rewrite history. It's sometimes hard to do. So then when I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal. But it's not about loyalty. But to me, it is. It's always about loyalty. It's not about loyalty, except to me it is. It is absolutely <laughs> about loyalty. Now, just yesterday, Ron DeSantis was asked about Trump's diss and if his response is any indication of how the 2024 primary cycle might look. Well, grab your popcorn. This, um, I roll out of bed. I have people attacking me from all angles. It's been happening for many, many years. And if you look at the good thing about it, though, is like if you take a crisis situation like COVID, you know, the good thing about it is when you're an elected executive, you have to make all kinds of decisions. You've got to steer that ship. And the good thing is, is that the people are able to render a judgment on that, whether they reelect you or not. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win reelection, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. What do you think about that response? Is he, is he demonstrating how he's going to parry the insults from Donald Trump in the, in the main race here? And did he do an effective job? Uh, I think so. I mean, it, it remains to be seen what happens when the two of them really go head to head. Uh, but first, I want to address Nikki Haley. Trump actually very smartly there when asked about her. That was a smart response. He knows, uh, probably, or based on that response, I think he knows, Nikki Haley is no threat to him mm -hmm. whatsoever. There's no chance that Nikki Haley will be the, can the GOP candidate for president. Uh, Trump knows that. Ron DeSantis knows that. Everyone mm. knows that. I don't know if Nikki Haley knows that or not. Maybe she doesn't. Probably she does. And in fact, running for president is just a good way to garner more PR for oneself. 
she could, you know, she, she running for president or president of a think tank eventually. I right? mean, do you think she might have said that to Trump, and that's why he's so um, soft on her, saying, "Hey, don't be offended. I'm obviously not she making a run of it." And he knows that he has at least some competent people around him. I imagine. I mean, you'd have to be a true moron to, to actually worry about Nikki Haley. Look, the, she's not well-liked um, among, the, among the GOP base. I see that when I, when I talk to people. Um, th there's something, uh, I think she's perceived as being a little inauthentic mm. for having kind of pivoted a bunch of times from a, I'm loyal to Trump, I'm ready to move on from Trump. I'm back with Trump. Um, I, I don't think she appears to stand for a lot, mm. to, or, or to the extent she stands for anything, she, it's more in the kind of old school Bush neoconservative direction. Um, that, that's that's how I think she portrays himself. That's at least how she's perceived. So I don't she, have any. It, I, she's she's very well spoken. Mm -hmm. um, I think she was a popular governor, but I don't think there's a lot of appetite among the GOP faithful for her to be the standard So bearer. tell me if I'm wrong. It, it feels to me like this is the kind of run that feels like a run for the VP spot. We had a hugely crowded mm -hmm. field on the Democratic end of this thing um, back in 2020, and it felt immediately like a lot of these candidates, especially ones that had unique kind of demographic characteristics, were in this to, to be paired with one of the older white men who was going to take the whole thing home. Do you see this as a similar strategy, or do you see her as an unlikely VP pick for any of the people who are more mainstream candidates? I don't see her as a particularly likely VP pick for Trump. Um, I, I think Trump will be more likely to pick someone closer in temperament to himself or closer to closer to uh, who's more beloved by his base. He doesn't he, even though make he them, he picked Pence last time as kind of a balancing act. But he regrets that, right? Pence, Pence stabbed in the back. He wants someone, it's all about loyalty. He wants someone super duper duper loyal. Mm -hmm. Someone who actually runs against him in this primary, I don't think they're going to get picked unless mm -hmm. he needs to ink that deal to get them out of the race or something. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is more about her own raising her national profile. Maybe she has a book to sell. Maybe she wants to do a speaking tour. Mm. That's that's an issue. There's no downside to running for president. That's why there were 18,000 people who did it in the in the GOP circles last time. Mm. Uh, and will be a real problem again because, let's be realistic, it's going to be Trump or it's going to be DeSantis. There's no one else has any chance whatsoever unless both those figures decide not to run for president. It will be one of them. The more people that run, the more it favors Trump. Uh, if, it's, uh, if it's just the two of them and only Nikki Haley and only Mike Pence, who again, don't really have a constituency, I don't believe, then, then DeSantis will, will be a formidable challenger. And it's worth noting, this is from a January 31st GOP primary tracker poll. Donald Trump is at 48% over Ron DeSantis's 31 percent, yeah, uh, in, in polls for who's going to eke it out as the but Republican nominee. But that's pretty. I mean, it's early. There it's, are still a early. lot of people who don't know who DeSantis even is. And Trump's lead used to be, I think, a little bit larger. Yeah. There was like a 20 point gap at one point. So Ron DeSantis is closing in. But I think that some of the predictions that say Donald Trump was out of it the second he announced, people were saying he was low energy, he doesn't have the mojo anymore. The, the polls tell a slightly different story. Yes. It, it's it's he's, close. He's in the game. I, I mean, I try to say, yes, when I talk about this, I by no means want anyone to have some delusion that, like, Trump is done. I think DeSantis is certainly capable of defeating him. In a head-to-head -head match between just the two of them, I, I would think DeSantis would be slightly favored because conservative media has consolidated around him. 
to a to a unprecedented degree. He seems very well liked by the base, and he's positioning himself to run to Trump's right mm -hmm. on COVID stuff, which is which was what was in that clip. You know, Trump's trying to remind people that well, Florida was closed down for a little while. But DeSantis is going to hit Trump on Operation Warp Speed and vaccines and, and being more seemingly pro-vaccine, which is going to peel off in, in the kind of hard right MAGA base primary type stuff is going to sap a little bit of enthusiasm for Trump over DeSantis. So, so there's a, I'm saying there's a strategy in place. There's a way forward for DeSantis to beat Trump. But there could be so many other factors. There could be a million people running, and he gets kind of lost in the noise. Conservative media could change their mind if something bad comes out about him, or if they find out their viewers will not stomach any turning on Trump whatsoever. They'll go back to touting Trump. So it's 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 still up for grabs. Yeah. Don't don't mistake me. Don't. I'm not. It is going to be an interesting fight to the death. Yeah, and, and it's also worth noting that in that same poll, next is Mike Pence down at eight percent. Yeah, he is. Nikki okay. Haley at three percent. So she's 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 up there in terms she of the ranking. She's more than Mike Pence, but but it's, it's not, not. And then Liz Cheney's not. also at three. Ted Cruz is at two, and on and on and on. So what do you make? So the big kind of unknown, and you mentioned this a little while ago, is what happens when Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are actually head to head. We obviously are very familiar with Donald Trump and his rhetorical style. Even before he ran for president, he was the subject of rap songs and reality TV shows, and like he was a part of the American fabric. Mm -hmm. He's in Home Alone, Escape in New York, Lost in New York. Okay. Ron DeSantis comparatively is this unknown quality. And Trump, many people have underestimated Trump. He obviously blew through the 2016 primary competition because no one had quite figured out how to parry his insults without getting sucked down into a mudslinging battle that no one can beat Trump in. Mm -hmm. I was rather impressed by DeSantis's ability to not engage seem like the mature adult in the room, seem substantive, you know, defer to the interests of the people who reelected him. You know, is that going to work or are people going to like miss the blood sport? He never calls out Trump by name because you can't. Because the, the MAGA base will not tolerate criticisms of Trump directly. Um, except unless you can find something they didn't quite love tr about Trump, including uh, his, his advocacy vaccines. of the vaccines, uh, maybe a few other things. So he is right now he's adopting the correct strategy of just like, you know, say I'm above this or, you know, this is this is vexing that some people I'm not going to say who they are, but they would come after me. Um, I mean, honestly, he's learned a little bit of that style from Trump, mm. uh, from being from from being uh, confrontational or fighting back without appearing to fight back. You know, Trump will say contradictory things like like he just said in that clip. Mm -hmm. He'll say, you know, for some people, you know, it's not all about loyalty, but it is for me. It's all about loyalty. <laughs> like he hits you with the Yeah. Who, you know, loyalty doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Yeah, he says what he knows he's supposed to say to seem like a halfway decent, normal person. And then it's like, ah, but this is who I am. It's, yeah. You know. But they're they're going to have to they're going to have to fight it out. They will fight it out. It is going to happen. And then and then we'll see how. People in, in Republican primaries, Republican voters feel about these two men when put up against each other. Yes, Trump has been counted out before, and every other time that was a miscalculation. So I am not making that mistake yeah, <laughs> right now, I to wouldn't. be clear. Could still be him, uh, but we'll have to see. Yeah. More rising right after this.
After Republicans overperformed in New York State's midterms elections last year, many of the mainstream media jumped to blame a, quote, suburban revolt over crime and quality of life. However, according to writer Matthew Thomas, it's just not true. Outcomes in New York City, more specifically in Asian and Hispanic neighborhoods, were the real culprit. In fact, between 2018 and 2022 alone, majority Hispanic and majority Asian precincts swung over 40 points rightwards. Will Democrats survive the looming crisis in New York City's outer boroughs? Author of the Vulgar Marxism Substack, Matt Thomas, joins us now to expand on his reporting. Nice to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Robbie. Good to be here. So what does your reporting tell us on, you know, what was going on in, in this election with the, you know, the changing uh, uh, consensus around crime? We've had a lot of debates about whether that's, you know, motivating, uh, it was motivating people to switch Republican or whether we were just losing progressive or leftist voters by, you know, kind of talking uh, to, to with a, a right of center framework about crime and culture, some other things without actually picking anyone up. Um, I actually don't know. Part of what is interesting about these trends in New York City, so just to give a little, zoom out a little bit, um, I've been looking at trends um, in majority Hispanic and majority Asian neighborhoods in New York City, um, beginning with the 2020 presidential election, um, continuing to the 2021 mayoral election, and then in this past governor's race. Um, and in all three races, you've seen a marked swing towards the GOP. Um, in both of those categories and among um, majority white precincts as well. Um, and so you see this continuing swing to the right over the past three election cycles. And while it's certainly true that, you know, issues of crime and public safety have figured somewhat into, um, you know, certainly in the last election and even in the mayoral race, it, it was somewhat less um, of a major theme. And, in 2020, although it was there also, um, it wasn't the sort of uniform focus of, of the media coverage of that race, um, but yet you see the same pattern. So I actually think that both sides kind of overstate the impact of uh, coverage of crime and even other public policy issues, and both sides have an interest in sort of stating that, right? You know, on the one hand, the left likes to sort of chide, um, you know, they like to create boogeyman out of, you know, the suburban white moderate, um, who they like to blame for the failures of the left and the Democratic Party more generally. Um, and then centrists and right of center people like to um, say, yes, actually, all the things that we've been saying uh, about any uh, out of control crime and lack of public safety are correct. And that's why voters are coming to us. But I kind of suspect that they're actually other factors at play that are national in scope, much more deep-seated and not really related to the particular news cycles of each election cycle. So help me understand then, because what uh, what you're describing as a trend, I believe specifically among Asian American and Hispanic households in New York to the right. Do What do we know or not know with respect to qualitative data as to what is motivating that specific trend? And I believe I heard you say that it's a more significant it's a more significant trend now than it was in 2020, despite crime also being a you know, pretty significant issue, obviously, in the context of 2020 and the George Floyd protests and all of that. So, so what is going on there? Because also, I'm old enough to remember when the story of AOC's victory in the Bronx in 2018 was partly a story about how she had mobilized 
younger white gentrifying DSA members to knock doors and turn people out for her in a low turnout district, whereas her predecessor, Joe Crowley, his source of power was largely in uh, Asian communities in Queens, um, and that she was able to overcome that, that like stranglehold that he had because of turnout in other parts of the city. So there's a lot of, you know, unexpected demographic narratives going on here. What do we, what do we intuit from the shift rightward among specifically Asian Americans and Hispanics? Yeah, there's a few points there to make. Number one is that it is interesting that in Queens, you do see in general elections, the shift towards the right um, among minority voters, basically. Um, but yeah, you also see a lot of success of socialist candidates in Queens in particular. I mean, I live in, in Western Queens and we now have four overlapping DSA endorsed candidates, state assembly, state senate, Congress, and city council. Um, but I actually don't think it's a contradiction at all. What it tells me is that there is a huge uh, collapse of institutional capacity with the local democratic machine and party infrastructure. And so in the context of primaries, that allows challenges from the left to succeed when you have robust infrastructure on the left. And when the left isn't, you know, duking it out in general elections, because we've you know, one in these safe districts in the primary, um, the party struggles against Republicans. Mm. Um, so I actually think it it makes a lot of sense. Um, but in, in terms of the the qualitative data, certainly the what you hear is that people are concerned about, yeah, crime and quality of life and public safety. Um, minority areas are typically the most impacted by by crime and violent crime of all types. And so people do express, um, you know, when you ask people to articulate what are the reasons they're moving to the right, those are the types of things that they say. Uh, also with Asian communities in particular, issues of education are highly important. Um, in New York City, um, we have specialized high schools, which are like selective uh, admission institutions um, and they're Asian students are typically overrepresented relative to the population because they work very hard and there's a huge focus in those immigrant communities of uh, on education and those are typically you know Asian immigrants they're some of the uh, some of them are the wealthiest uh, immigrant groups in New York City but also some of the deepest poverty among immigrant communities in New York City is among Asian communities so it really depends and a lot of those people who come from poor and working class backgrounds in these Asian immigrant communities really rely on education um, and and send that as sort of the means of achieving upward mobility. And there's a, a fear that Democrats are not being responsive to upholding educational quality and integrity in, in the city. And so that's another big, big reason that people talk about also. Um, but I would just say that while that all may be true, I also think that people articulate reasons for their movements in the moment in response to current events, but they may be in fact driven by more you know, things that they don't understand, um, not that they don't understand, but like, for example, non-college whites have been moving rightward since the 60s. And they could say it's in relation to this or that issue, but really, you know, it's the same trend over many decades, even though the issues change. Mm. And so my kind of hot take is that you're just seeing all non-college voters move to the right now and that it's jumped the racial barrier. Um, and that more than anything is what we're seeing. Right, yeah, I was just going to ask about that. Nationally, we talked about the salience of race uh, decreasing and the salience of both income and educational attainment 
increasing so that you know more the, the more educated the wealthier voters are are becoming more are moving toward the democratic party whereas uh, all all voters regardless of race who who don't fall into those categories moving toward the republican party which might produce uh, would you argue is producing uh, very interesting phenomenons in places like new york city where you have a lot of immigrant communities um, then you know not, not voting or might maybe voting overall in a general differently than a primary for that reason yes i mean i think that's exactly what's happening the one exception i would note is black voters um there's some movement to the right um year over year but ultimately when you compare it to the movement in asian and hispanic um, communities it's really negligible um and so that's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, there's a lot to say about, you know, there are different interpretations of that also in terms of who the right wing is able to reach out to in terms of this realignment and what are the limits of that. Um, but I definitely agree that, I mean, I think that this shift will continue into the future. I mean, as I've said, we've seen, you know, I look at specifically at New York City in the past three election cycles, state, local, and federal level, three in a row, you see the same trend, and it's just downward trajectory um, of Asian and Hispanic voters away from the Dems and towards the GOP. It's, it's difficult to know. I mean, nobody wants to be in the prediction game anymore these days, um, but uh, there's no reason to think that that trend won't continue. I mean, just as an example, like in 2018, in you know, heavily Hispanic enclaves, precincts where that are more than 75% Hispanic, uh, Cuomo got 90% of, of the vote in those precincts and Hochul got in the 60s. I mean, it's just, it's just massive mm. over, you know, in one cycle. And that would have been, if you had said that to people four years ago, they'd been like, what are you talking about? That's inconceivable. So people are like, well, how, why would it continue going in that direction? Well, why wouldn't it? It's come this far. And you're saying that's about, that's a trend that's happening. And what we'll, what we'll now do is try to say, well, that's because of X, Y, Z reason. You know, Cuomo had his scandal or maybe, Ho, you know, Hochul's not popular. They know, nobody ever chose her. The, she was the just like name recognition you're saying on that's Cuomo not true. is, the, the, the name recognition, I mean, it, it is difficult to disentangle the specifics of what's happening here. Cuomo is a, its political legacy, and comparing it to Hochul, who kind of stepped into his position midstream, I would imagine I I, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that there's that huge um, gap between the two of them. It's true, and so there's that, which is why I think you have to look at you know. You, you can then compare it to 2021. You see the same trend also with Eric Adams and Curtis Sliwa, and the trend is there also. Um, even though Eric Adams, you know, I, I specifically look at Hispanic communities in Queens. Eric Adams was the borough president of Brooklyn. Like in these like super high, you know, Hispanic dense neighborhoods in Queens, there's probably not gonna be a huge connection there. And yet you still see this movement. Um, but like, for example, in 2014, which as we know is a huge um, red wave year, I mean, rock bottom turnout, the turnout in New York City that year um, was 21%. I mean, just couldn't get worse. Um, and Cuomo still won 83% of the vote in uh, majority Hispanic enclaves. Um, and uh, Hochul won 66. Um, and even though turnout was 15 points higher in New York City this year than it was in 2014. Um, so, you know, you do see these trends. Certainly Hochul, you know, 
I think it's certainly fair to say that she does not have the same oomph and the same legacy and the same sort of command of the electorate. Um, but the bulk of the, like how dramatic the trends are suggests to me an underlying uh, issue. Hmm. Well, Matt Thomas, thank you for bringing that analysis to Rising. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Political commentator Jimmy Dore had this to say on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show yesterday. We're the ones provoking this war, just like we provoked the war in Ukraine. We are now provoking a war with China. And what? who, who benefits? I'll tell you right now. Your enemy is not China. Your enemy is not Russia. Your enemy is the military-industrial complex, which has been fleecing this country to the tunes of hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. How many times are we going to have a defense secretary say, hey, we can't account for $2 trillion in the Pentagon again, That like, which has happened twice now in my life? Lifetime. So, again, people are being, uh, uh, the, the war machine cannot be stopped. Who's running this country? The war machine. It certainly isn't Joe Biden making these decisions. Head of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts, tweeted, Congress needs to put away its kid gloves and put the Department of Defense and other agencies alike under the knife to excise wasteful spending. It is a top priority to save our nation. A growing number of Americans believe the U.S. is giving too much support to Ukraine. According to The Hill, 26 percent of Americans think the United States' support of Ukraine is too strong, a new Pew Research Center poll finds. So a number of interesting things here. You have Jimmy Dore, uh, a YouTuber, I think, formally considered in good standing on the left. Uh, I, think he's a, I think he's a leftist and still identifies as a leftist. He supports well, Medicare for all and wealth taxes and all of the things. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of other people, People who, who were for Bernie, who were on the left, are really frustrated about how much uh, uh, approval of the, deep, the national security state, the deep state, there seems to be in Democratic circles, going on Tucker, who's like-minded on this issue, and pr probably many other, several other things Jimmy Dore agrees with, to talk about how uh, the, the, the blob always wants foreign policy intervention, is all for this Ukraine uh, exercise when the American people aren't necessarily there. I don't think conservative voters are there. You see that in the poll data. You see that in, and I'm, I'm glad to see, I, I, when we talked about your radar today, you talked about spending, and I said, look, can some conservatives ha are coming around on this, or, or, or if they were always around, they're being more vocal about it, including Kevin Roberts, who is president of the Heritage Foundation, which is the conservative think tank. Uh, it's had, I think, a little bit of an ideological evolution under his tenure mm. to being uh, much less hawkish. Um, in fact, I think they parted ways with some of their national security mm. experts at the think tank because they were very, very for Ukraine at all costs. Uh, Kevin Roberts feels differently or, or knows that what conservative-minded voters and supporters want is a different policy. And yes, defense spending obviously has to be on the table. You sound like a hypocrite right. if you rail against government spending, but you're like, oh yeah, another couple billion, a trillion for, for nation building elsewhere. Yeah. Nobody buys that. And That's not persuasive. And Jimmy's right about uh, the Pentagon keep miss, missing money. Like he can't come up with the funds, can't track its own funds. It's failed the last five audits it's experienced. I don't know what other mm -hmm. government agency would have such poor financial mismanagement dealing with such huge sums of money and not come under scrutiny by Republicans who 
sine qua non is focusing on wasteful spending like that. The Pentagon so, routinely loses money it spent in Afghanistan and Iraq that it can't account for. Weapons can't be accounted for. Nobody knows what they're doing. Absolutely. So it, it, I, I will say about Tucker Carlson, my understanding is that there's a little bit of a mixed bag on his China hawkishness as compared to his Ukraine hawkishness. And there's a number of guests who regularly really seem to be beating the drums of war for engagement with China, who uh, part of kind of the, the broader Fox News universe. But there is a lot more ideological diversity, especially in this area, on Fox News. And it is very mm -hmm. nice, frankly, to see that Jimmy Dore is able to go on and make the kind of argument that he would rarely be offered the opportunity to make on MSNBC or CNN. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine to, to criticize China. I think it's fine to criticize Russia, too, to be upset with the policies of the government. I'm very upset with the policies of uh, the Chinese government with respect to our own companies here, which, which can't, which when they want to operate in China, have to do self-censorship to appease the, the communist authoritarians of China. I hate their lockdown policies and everything else. But you're right. That doesn't mean we go to war with them. That doesn't mean we we are our government should should uh, have this rhetoric that brings us closer to the brink of war with them. So I, I agree with Jimmy Dore. You know, refocusing. You know, we're as American citizens. What can we do? And we should exercise our power as voters, as constituents, to be upset with. The war machine. I agree with that. Yeah, it is frustrating also. I mean, Jimmy Dore gets a lot of criticism from folks who say, one, that, that going on conservative shows is evidence somehow of his conservative allegiances, even though obviously Joanne Reed is not extending uh, Jimmy Dore invitations to come on her show, just as an example. Um, and moreover, they make this argument that when he points out that they're as, 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 as limited as the energy is on the right for this kind of thing, as you've pointed out, there is more energy, at least from people in power and elected officials, on the right than there is on the left. And that is not a compliment to the right. It's an indictment of the left, a community to which Jimmy Dore belongs, and a warning that if there is not more of more representation of this worldview, as we saw from the polls, this is a very common plurality kind of worldview in the United States. If there's not more representation of that view on the left, you are going to get people moving right because of this issue in, in particular. Yeah. I mean, let's say your main issue, obviously you can care about multiple things, but let's say your main issue is foreign policy, is being against support for war, is you know bring the troops home, non-interventionist, against drones, that kind of mindset. Let's say that's your main issue. And that's fair to be your main issue because that's, that's one of the most significant things our government does is, is, uh, is kill people, right? Is involves, is, is make decisions about which governments we should be working with, which we should be trying to overthrow. These are consequential decisions. These are where the president has the most power, frankly. The, the, the president is least constrained in matters of foreign policy by Congress. Congress has rubber stamped the, 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 the executive administration's behavior on foreign policy mm -hmm. is very unconstrained. So it is right to be primarily concerned about foreign policy. If that is your primary concern and you're, you're what would have previously been considered like a hardcore leftist person on that, which party do you belong in right now? You can make a case that the party you belong in is the Republican well, Party. Well, I mean, I think it's complicated because— Or as because you said, not the Democratic not, Party. The, I think it's complicated because, the one, again, it's a very limited perspective even within the Republican Party. It's not that Republican leadership, um, with the exception of some folks, you know, maybe Kevin McCarthy, are talking yeah. about— we have to withdraw from Ukraine. We're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. So also you have to tease out what is kind of political posturing and what commitments are actually likely to be made uh, by Congress. But the other issue is that 
it's not just a foreign policy issue. I think part of what's animating the frustration here is that things are going so poorly domestically. So it's people who are frustrated, not just that so much spending is going out the door to other countries, but that there is not the same appetite for spending at home, which is footing that conservatives are on less healthy ground on, because to the extent that some of them will say, OK, we shouldn't spend on Ukraine, they're also not saying we need to use those resources to help Americans be able to uh, afford gas, afford eggs, and the like. Moreover, for many people on the left, I would say that foreign policy is increasingly a defining issue. Many people look at Bernie Sanders being relatively weak in that area as compared to his um, domestic policy as kind of a warning bell of his unwillingness to fight and being as quite as antagonistic to the establishment as people wanted him to be at the end of his 2020 race. And when there are criticized, where they're looking at prospective other left candidates this time around, like Marianne Williamson, it is her foreign policy positions that have caused the most anxiety and conflict and uh, pushback among certain parts of the left um, because of her, you know, statements on Israel, for example, uh, not being as strong as many as many leftists would alike. It's also worth noting um, with respect to Israel that, you know, Anthony Blinken, Blinken um, is uh, is just visited with Netanyahu. And while he made some statements that were critical of the settlements, he affirmed his commitment, the United States' commitment to Israel over and over and over again. And that, again, is a real sticking point of an issue for leftists and people who are concerned with this issue. So America says, what's the justification for being in Ukraine? A country can't avoid, uh, invade another country's borders. This is the line in the sand. We're always going to get involved. Well, the hypocrisy then becomes in incredibly acute when you're looking at Israel, who is engaging those same kind of behaviors uh, as as Russia invading, you know, and and, and keeping Palestinians in this open air prison, as it's been described by so many authorities in this in this matter, and, and including um, Israeli politicians. And why? What justifies America's relationship with Israel on one hand, and its um, proxy war with Russia on the other hand? Mm. Yeah, and and what uh, and, and what you what do you have to do to get an actual you know anti war democratic political figure when they run they run, Barack Obama ran on the mistakes calling out mistakes mm -hmm. that were being made in Iraq and Afghanistan and then governed completely differently than that then put Hillary Clinton in charge of his foreign policy and you saw the results what what we got was uh, intervention in Libya yeah which was consistent with her philosophy but th the seduction of being of being not anti-war, of being yeah. pro-war when you actually get into office is something uh, many Democrats have not been able to overcome, M I many agree. Republicans as well, I, but I many agree. of them didn't make the same commitments. I mean, Obama is the perfect example of why I am skeptical of people who are saying the right things um, on the right right now, because yeah. uh, when you are disempowered, if you are even speaker of a, a house, when you don't control the other prongs of government, you can say a lot of things knowing that nothing's going to manifest. So it's not to say that I... I don't want to give credit where credit's due, but it's measured credit because we've been here before, and I have been close enough to the disappointment of Barack Obama not to put blind faith in someone like The tenor like of both political parties on these issues does ma not match what the American people yeah. want. The, the blob is bipartisan. Yeah. yeah. More rising right after this. Unwelcome guest, everyone wishes would just leave already. That's COVID 19. And that's why I got the new updated booster designed to help protect against recent Omicron variants. Got it? 
That was Martha Stewart serving as a spokesperson for Pfizer as the pharma giant plans to bring its COVID-19 vaccine to the commercial market later this year. The pharmaceutical giant was instrumental in the vaccine rollout in the earlier days of the pandemic, but as the government buys less and less of the COVID vaccine, Pfizer expects to lose billions in revenue. According to CNBC News, Pfizer reported a whopping $100 billion in revenue in 2022, with sales from the COVID-19 vaccine and Paxlovid, an oral antiviral, making up more than half of that amount. Despite the record profit, Pfizer is anticipating a dramatic decrease in profits. COVID vaccine sales are expected to be slashed by 64% soon. Not a surprise as demand for the vaccine wanes. Slashed just like Martha Stewart's pineapple. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you picked up on something uh, when we had played this before we started. Mm -hmm. Did you want to tell the audience what you noticed yeah, in her well, language there? She describes the booster as having been designed uh, to uh, be more effective against the new variants, whether or not it was designed to be more effective against the new variants and whether it is in fact more effective against the new variants has been a matter of a lot of dispute that we've talked about on this show. So it does seem to be like some kind of shifty, right. shifty language There's there. There's a genuine scientific debate over how much better, if better at all, the bivalent performs if it up against the new variants compared to just any old booster and so on and so forth you know there are there are valid questions about how much additional protection someone who's already had covid or someone who's vaccinated with the initial shot is getting with further and further shots. Of course, Pfizer has incentive to sell more and more shots because it's going to be charging them now on the commercial market. Although I assume most, if you have health care coverage, you're going to be able to get that covered by health care. Not everybody has it, Mostly, of course, and, but, yeah, not everybody has it. But here, so here, I don't think people will be generally paying the sticker price for this. The, the framing of this is kind of wild to me on a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons. For one, this, uh, you know, revenue is dropping. Like, like if this is an urgent kind of economic crisis that the public should be invested in. No, these pharmaceutical companies saw an, a boon in profits because of their relationship with the government and providing for these vaccines, getting liability shields, um, having the government contracts to buy all of this. And now it's going away. Biden has said the pandemic is over. He's given us a pullout date, uh, mission accomplished for, what was it, May 11th? Mm -hmm. um, and so they are apparently more abruptly than the pharmaceutical companies anticipated ending these contracts. So the pharmaceutical companies are upset. Oh because, no, the emergency <laughs> is over. <laughs> well, the pharmaceutical companies are upset because they, one, they have to distribute all of the vaccines that the government's already paid for, before it can then start charging people, um, apparently somewhere between $110 and $130 per dose for uh, additional vaccines. And as they point out in all these articles, the, the demand is, is waning a great deal. And I, it is, I expect it to wane even more when people aren't able to get the vaccine for free, but have to start considering whether or not they're insured and what percentage of it is covered by their insurance and all of the rigmarole that we always have to deal with when talking about the American healthcare system. Right. Uh yeah, it's a weird uh, way of approaching this issue. Like, oh, our profits are going down. Like, this was going to be ideally, right, a one-time bonanza in profits for the companies making the vaccines and the antivirals for this emergency because the goal is not for Pfizer to make a lot of money. The, the, like, right. the social goal is for COVID to be defeated and go away and right. no one die and no one get sick. 
Uh, again, I, I have no problem with Pfizer profiting along the way to that mission. Um, it, it should be we have to be cognizant of how much input over actual government policy the people who stand to profit are having. Are things getting required? Are things getting um, immunized from liability, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth? Where's you know where's the government funding coming from? What strings are attached to that? Who's advising government health scientists? Are they on the boards of Pfizer and then going on television, i.e., Scott Gottlieb, et cetera? Those are all very valid public policy questions. Uh, I and Pfizer a lot of profits, good for them, but. You know, we have to. We, the, the goal is to not have to deal with COVID. Well, now they're going to turn to us. They 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 got the profit off of our backs indirectly by getting it from the American government, and now that pool of resources is dried up. So they're going back direct to the consumer and pitching us using a beloved icons like uh, Martha Stewart to try to convince us to keep paying for something despite there being well, I conflicting. I feel very confused. We're going to be safe from. It, it was a like. She the, was the doing sword a, sharpening. What was the sword? The sword was that a pine? That was a, lot, a little big for a pineapple sword, right? There's a such thing as a pineapple sword. Yeah, don't you remember <laughs> season one of the White Lotus? A, a, a dedicated sword for pineapples. Yes, there's a sword for opening a pineapple, uh, for slicing a pineapple. But I don't. Th what she had there, I believe, was a katana. I, and I, uh, and and that's so now we're mixing metaphors here. Is it like it's like a defense, like a samurai? See, you, but she was in the kitchen. You, I don't know. You were hung up on the sword. I was I was I'm hung up on the hung up on the sword. I was hung up on the idea of a woman her age talking about a monthly visitor that won't go away. I, I thought it was going to be a different kind of commercial <laughs> altogether when it first started playing. But 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 regardless, um, <laughs> like Alzheimer's or something. No, like know, la lady, lady, lady things. I yes, yes, Robbie. I'm trying stuff. to save. I'm trying to save you after I've gotten us into this morass. Right. Um, I the the one other thing I wanted to say about this is that we have all of this, you know, COVID skepticism that has been the enemy of Democrats since the beginning of this, mm -hmm. um, and they have made a lot of statements about how important the vaccine is and how we, we you know we everyone was supposed to get it because it was going to get us to a certain point of heart immunity obviously we learned more about the science things change yada yada I, I don't expect everyone to be in the exact same rhetorical place they were in like the summer of 2021 however it does strike me as an interesting choice heading into an election season where covid is this battleground to basically concede that COVID isn't important enough for the government to want to fund vaccines. And it still butts, butts against all of this language that was used earlier in the pandemic about how unconscionable it would be for people not to be able to take the precautions against this horrible, deadly virus just because they're too poor to pay. And now the government has to contend with having said things about like that about COVID while suddenly thrusting people back into the wild, wild west of healthcare, just like every other disease. And I will never forget I'm sorry to personalize this, but I'll never forget the vitriol that I got in the April of 2020 when Kamala Harris tweeted, no one should die from COVID because they can't afford healthcare. And I simply quote tweeted it and said, totes my goats. Also though, what about diabetes and cancer and heart disease and all the other things that people die from or are sick from because they can't afford healthcare in this country. In greater numbers than in COVID. In greater numbers than in COVID, <laughs> absolutely. And can't say that, people but. were livid about pointing out the obvious end game of that kind of a statement. So both in, co in the context of COVID and in broader healthcare, America, uh, sorry, Democrats rather have set themselves up as frankly coming off as disingenuous. Was this really about wanting to keep people from COVID? You know, was this really about an investment in people's public health? Or was this about the economy getting, getting things back on track, not losing out on their money and their, their investments? Mm -hmm.
And remember Kamala Harris's initial reaction to the idea of COVID vaccines, which was if Donald Trump says to take it. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a very, a very unallowed opinion to have. I thank now, God for the long memories here on Rising, Robbie. I was Googling that <laughs> in between Googling pineapple sore. <laughs> okay, up, update me on the pineapple sores during the break. We'll have a rising for you right after this. The Virginia House of Delegates is the latest state legislature to push forward a bill restricting the rights of transgender people on Monday. The bill in question would block transgender women from competing in women's sports in the state's schools at any level, including interscholastic, intercollegiate, intramural, and club athletic teams. The bill, however, does not put any restrictions on participation by transgender men. Delegate Karen Greenhall spearheaded the bill and said, quote, the purpose of House Bill 1387 is to protect our girls and our young women from being forced to compete against biological males. Two days ago, former President Donald Trump vowed to continue fighting against trans rights should he take the White House back in 2024. Here he is speaking at a rally in South Carolina over the weekend. We're going to defeat the cult of gender ideology and reaffirm that God created two genders called men and women. We're not going to allow men to play in women's sports. And by so doing, you know what happens. We're going to save the dignity of women and we're going to save women's sports itself. It's ridiculous. I don't know. Look, uh, Aaron Reed, who's been on this program, has pointed out that there are over 260 anti-trans bills moving around the United States right now, some of which are especially draconian, banning things like wearing drag at all, which is, it's not clear what that means about, you know, your ability to dress up as Khaleesi on Halloween or my ability to go as uh, Peter Pan. By you, you meant me. <laughs> <laughs> that was directed at yes, me. Yes, you, you dressing up as Khaleesi, me as Peter Pan. I mean, these are things that yeah. a ban on drag would prohibit. And historically, these kinds of bans on drag have been used to basically criminalize the gay community more broadly. If you can't stick them with a specific crime, you make things like that criminalize things that aren't like specifically necessarily saying it's illegal to be gay, but have a broader effect of uh, policing various communities. Um, and it, it seems to me, when you see the remarks like that from Donald Trump, um, Ron DeSantis made similar remarks, I believe it was yesterday, it's hard to imagine what this approach is all about, given the relative disinterest among Americans uh, in this issue in terms of their political priorities, other than a desperate attempt for Republicans to say, talk about anything other than the lack of substantive revisions for people, people's material needs in this country. We're not offering anything other than uh, book bans on gender, uh, you know, gender-related school materials and prohibitions against gender-affirming care uh, for the small handful of trans kids that may or may not live in your state. So we're talking about a, a wide swath of policies here, many of which, at the end of the day, I would agree with you, are ridiculous, criminalizing adults in drag, or I mean, anyone, anyone in drag, honestly, who cares? <laughs> I mean, and, and explicitly violates the First Amendment. Um, I, I don't have much interest in, again, policing uh, gender-affirming care for, for adults. Uh, I, I leave that to individual families and doctors to make those decisions. I don't really think it's anyone else's business. I don't think the state should criminalize it. That seems like a draconian overreach. I agree with you. 
This category, what Virginia is aiming at here, um, it, I think you would concede is a more, uh, or at least has some kind of substantive uh, concern behind it. Uh, maybe you don't agree. Well, you can make Keeping... an argument about professional level, collegiate level sports. Does the, you know, does the comp does it make competition unfair for cis women competing against trans women? You know, are the rule are there rules in place that me that make it so that trans women have to be uh, at a certain point in their transition that makes it like legitimately equal? And these debates are ongoing. What I don't think I th where I think that this is also similarly an overreach is that this bans competition at any level, like intramural sports. Like, have you never been on an intramural team with? members of the opposite sex. I played t-ball as a little kid with boys and girls alike, as like a five-year-old, as like a seven-year-old. I played intramural sports in school and in well, college what is, what with people the, of all different genders. What is the um, age at which this kicks in? All ages? It says at any level. Uh, Kindergarten through 12th. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, you can't play. Little Giants as a movie is canceled by Republicans because they, they just fundamentally would allow that little girl to play on the team. Sorry, well, but those te I don't know if that would apply if teams are co-ed. I don't know that it applies to them. The issue is having trans uh, trans women on female teams is, I think, the language. So I think like like a, a track team through sixth grade or eighth grade is probably co-ed. Um, same goes for many other sports. So you don't have that. You, you don't. It, but then once you have the sex segregation, you can't have individuals who have the biological advantages of having been born in a male body competing with the women. I think that is what is being yeah, I mean, look, here, look, which uh, which is, I think, is not at all wrong or crazy to think that. And and I've seen the polling, and most people agree with that. Even many Democrats and liberals. Polling is one thing, but in real life, I think it was in Utah. They had one of these bans coming down the pike last year. It implicated exactly one child. And when the community saw that it meant that this one little girl was going to have to play on a boy's team, everyone looked at this and said, this is absurd. Why are we doing this? And stopped it. Like, in real life, there is some 11-year-old who presents as a girl, who identifies as a girl, who you want to go and make play on the I mean, there, boy's there's team. There's not that many, there's not you, that look, many Yeah, there's not that many. Yeah. And yet we're doing 200, how many laws did I say, percolating through the court system right now, violating civil liberties because of what? And in real life, when communities are faced with the reality of what they're forcing kids to do, this is not, this is not, you know, Federer being forced to play against uh, uh, the Williams sisters. Like, this is not that level of competition. These are all people who are crappy at their sports because they're just playing for fun. Well, no, 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 no. No, I don't agree with that at all. High school athletics can be, uh, is very important. It's very competitive for a lot of the people involved in it. Uh, it. It can lead to college and college scholarships right. and, and all and sorts of things. This, it's important. And yet it's, this law is overly broad and isn't limited to competitive athletics. It's not. It's by, I didn't I write, mean, the the, I didn't the write it. The first place is overly, like in an ideal world, we could just leave this up to common sense and schools and to make the best choices. But there was, there was guidance the other way from the Obama administration and the Biden administration on uh, uh, forcing this to be the case under the auspices of Title IX. So they're trying to correct some of this and say that. Well, if they want to do an advisory letter the way that Obama did an advisory letter asking people to comply, they can do that. But they are passing laws 
over 200 laws across the United States of America to prevent people from living their lives the way they want to live. So look, if the Republican Party wants to say, we're not going to talk about material economic issues, we're not going to support policies that would lower the price of gas at the pump, we're not going to talk about policies that would break up big ag and their ability to do price hikes and extract uh, I mean, rent little, fees for you. You can talk about multiple on, things. On eggs. No, you can't talk about multiple things. Republicans know that, and that's exactly why they want us talking about this. So look, if the voters... Voters of America make a choice that the number one issue that they want to vote on, the thing that is, is, is motivating them to go to the polls and vote for Republicans, is whether or not a trans kid, who knows if they even never met a trans kid in their entire life, but for some trans kid somewhere not to compete on a team, God bless, probably you have a law percolating through your state that's going to give you an but opportunity so to vote on that metric. And so stupid, and you're, it doesn't matter at all, then, then why do you care that the law exists? It was only going to affect one person in the state. Because it's immoral, and because I've, I've all no, you have to protect the rights of minorities in this country. That's the whole point of America. That you don't run ramshot over human beings because there's just only a few of them. <laughs> like that, that, that's why. So I think it's it's immoral. It's wrong for people to be doing this. But from the people who don't care about, that don't, don't share my moral worldview, I'm making a different argument that they're being intentionally distracted by something that they think is important to them. Okay, that's it's fine. Wrong to say that the trans woman can't wrestle on the women's team. I think it's wrong to that's say fundamentally no. wrong. If they want to make that case, if they want to have a debate about what the rules and regulations should be for trans people to commit uh, to to participate in the sport of their uh, in the gender category of their identification, that's a, I think that's a legitimate debate to have. And in I the think Olympics, that's what's happening. no, it's not. These are draconian laws that would ban your ability to wear pants if you weren't well, born that, biologically yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. That is dumb. Well, yeah, I agree with you on or, that. Or, yeah, these are what these laws do. None of these well, are these narrowly... These are just this law. These, this law would ban a, a, a trans 5-year-old, a trans 10-year-old, and a 10-year-old that identifies as the sex other than what they were at birth from playing on a t-ball team. If you think that's defensible, then fine. Then this is the bill for you. You know, hallelujah, West Virginia, wherever this one is. I'm sorry. There's, I know no, it's our, uh, this it's one's our Virginia, Virginia. Virginia. Our Virginia. Um, but... Most, Virginia right most, down over most there. people get to the points where they realize this is a, ridic a, ridic a ridiculous restriction on freedoms that has nothing to do with their core issues in the world. Like, that is what it is. So I, I am going to take the time. I'm not going to, me personally, fall for that trap. I think that Ron, what is Ron DeSantis' stance on Social Security, other than he wants to cut it? What's, Ron, what's the Republican Party's stance as a whole, and credit due to the few you know, non-interventionists that are percolating, but on the whole on Ukraine funding. What's their plan to deal with the national debt? What's their plan to deal with the health care crisis? I think we can also talk about issues specifically, though, without saying, well, you can't focus on that or ever write a bill uh, well, about here, that. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to talk about. I, I is personally— Is cutting funding to Ukraine a better use of political figures' but time? They, sure, but we're talking about the state house but, of Virginia. But here, here's the thing, Robbie. You and I are not the people who have any investment in or knowledge about the debate about how, what it means for trans people to compete fairly in these in these kind of uh, competitive athletic contexts. I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had, but I'm not going to sit here and say I am in good faith having that conversation when we know that that's not what this is about at all. There are other places in the world that have come up with laws. There, the Olympics have come up with laws, rules, and regulations to try to actually get at the core fairness issue. Sounds like there should is, be a separate team or a separate league for trans individuals. I'm sorry, you think the one trans girl in our high school in Utah or middle school in Utah? You can get them all across the country. So your your plan is to fly high school, elementary school students, grade school students 
to make one super, super league of trans kids. People uh, come up with their own leagues for all sorts of stuff. That seems like a better solution than, than putting them on a team where they have a clear advantage. Well, so that's the thing. They don't always have a clear advantage. And that's part of what the regulations in the Olympic context are all about. Like, if we were having a sincere conversation about this, we'd be talking about the fact that in the Olympics, it's been decided that you have to be on hormones for a certain amount of time. You have to, like, test at a certain kind of level. There are efforts to try to equalize what people are actually bringing to the table athletically. Because as many people have pointed out, the folks that are competing at high levels have abnormal bodies, generally speaking. They're weirdly tall. They have extra ribs like mm -hmm. Michael Phelps. They are, they are able to compete at that level because they're, they're not like the rest of us. And it is a more delicate, nuanced conversation about what it means for these things to be actually fair you were just than exist in the real world. And, and, and you were saying we're not, but right, we're not talking at that level. We're talking at the level right. of ordinary ability where this could be a massive advantage. Well, at the level of ordinary ability and where it's not especially competitive, I don't think it's an issue. If we're talking about people competing for college scholarships, people for competing for titles in their state, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, okay, look, maybe the people at schools who are recruiting and, and doing ranking systems have an asterisk or a caveat that accounts for the fact that there are people... <laughs> Competing at the Biden administration's of interpretation of Title IX will have something to say about that. Look, I, I, like I, I think that. The part yeah, of, I dare them to do no, that. I think, I think that part of the brace problem, yourself for the federal civil rights investigation based on that. I think that part of the problem is that we rely on academic scholarship. It's so important for people to even be able to afford to go to college that they have to run a certain pace in order to get a college degree and have all of the economic benefits that accrue to that. Oh, that's the fundamental that's issue. And, the, and it's not a diff different conversation. It's over and over and over again the same conversation. Are we talking about military recruiting? Are we talking about poverty? Over and over again, the core, or crime rather, over and over again, the core issue is whether or not people are forced into making constrained choices and overvaluing. Immigration is another one. If everyone we're living a great life and had a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage, the, the fervor against immigrants in this country would not be what it is today. And so we can dance around the issue and vilify a bunch of people who aren't really the source of our problems, or we cannot be deluded by these distractions and actually ask our elected representatives to go down the list of what our stated polled priorities are. And I promise you that trans kids competing in school, as annoying as it might be to somebody, as inconvenient, as, as genuinely disappointing as it might be to a young cis girl who is really looking forward to a scholarship, and I don't want to minimize that. When you look at what the American priorities are, that doesn't that isn't on there anywhere. And so people have to be, to ask why. There being identity politics, the way that Democrats identity politics voters for so long, and to caring about what the party seems to be about to be superficially without delivering for anything materially. Oh. Is it the case that political figures should prioritize other issues or, or wrongly prioritize issues? Yes, of course. Is this the case that this is the top issue for every voter in America? No, of course not. But that it's but nowhere near the, the top on how for any voters pulled. in America. Right, but they spent a little time, right, a little bill to address something that seventy percent of people feel this way about. It's two hundred and sixty. Eighty percent of people, including most Democrats. It's not a little bit. It's two hundred and sixty bills. Many of which are going to be unconstitutional and waste a lot of taxpayer money. Well, we can go. We and, go. We can go through them. I might be against 254 and, and, and of the, them. And the two major presidential candidates uh, for the Republican Party are both both made speeches in the last two days, specifically zeroing in on this issue. That that doesn't strike Trump zeroed in on the issue in the in the Virginia bill, the sports part. Sure. Yeah. 
That's not again. That does, that's not all the it, the 260 bills are not all bills of that nature. A lot of them are. Look, if the if the Republican Party wants to make itself the anti-trans party, God bless. But we saw in midterms that that didn't carry the day, and we'll see if they they basically perform at the national level what we saw in midterms, which was the more culture war candidate won locally, and then went on to lose in the general election. And so maybe the most culture war, DeSantis and Trump can fight out to see who is most weirded out by trans people, get the nomination, and then they're going to have to figure out if America really wants that or whatever the Democratic candidate has on offer. I don't think most people think you're a culture warrior if you agree with this bill or have expressed the same concerns in this specific bill. bill. It's about choosing to make this your entire identity. Okay. Well, I agree. <laughs> We're going back and forth. <laughs> don't make it your entire identity. I don't think this is an example of that necessarily, but uh, agree to disagree. We'll have more rising right after this. That was President Biden responding to a question about ending the COVID emergency. Uh, I think he may have been confused there. If you had trouble hearing the video, the reporter asked, what's behind your decision to end the COVID emergency? And then Biden answers, the COVID emergency will end when the Supreme Court ends it. It was a very weird remark, and I think maybe he misheard it, because she, like, the reporter was asking, why did you say the emergency is going to end May 11th or whatever the date is? And he said, well, no, the court's going to decide when it's ending. So I don't... Yeah, I don't, maybe I don't he know meant if the he's referring to the kinds of... The yeah, title uh, the 42? The eviction moratorium, other things have been subject to... Yeah. The Supreme Court deciding whether or not it's I don't know if that warranted. Was a senior moment or him just mishearing. I mean, it is also a very common Democratic pivot to basically put on the courts what you are not wanting to take on the political cost of doing yourself. And maybe he was hopeful that this is one of those occasions, um, but it's not. It's not clear to me. What yeah, I don't know there. what to make of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not clear. It, it's. It, he said it's going to end. He said it's over. He said it's going. So I, I don't know why. I, I just don't understand. Yeah. I think he might be misheard. Well, so. perhaps in related news, uh, <laughs> Biden's physical health is also being scrutinized again, this time after not submitting to his 2022 physical exam uh, well past the January deadline. You know, again, I'm old enough to remember when there was a whole media cycle pretending that Bernie Sanders hadn't disclosed his health records after he had had his heart attack. And no matter what he disclosed, it was, I said this at the time, and people accuse me of being racist. I don't work for anybody now, so I'm going to say it again. Um, that it was had, had very, like, Obama birth certificate vibes. Like, no matter what he provided, they are always like, well, there's this other thing that we want to see, some other documents, some other people, until they saw, you know, like an X-ray of his kidneys, like <laughs> his body turned inside out, but they, they were never going to be satisfied. So comparing that fervor around the relative silence around the people that the establishment like Bloomberg having had two stent procedures, radio silence, Biden having had the brain surgery. Remember how many angry years the ago. press was about Trump's physical Trump's and him physical. having some Trump just doctor. being overweight <laughs> made statues go up in Central Park. Okay, and now Joe Biden, who has had a, a history of having some health issues himself and is, you know, the uh, historically old um, uh, president, 
skipping a physical uh, is not raising as many questions as I would expect from a liberal media that had a huge appetite for talking about other people's health mm -hmm. issues. Maybe they think in the wake of... Uh, the, the Biden team is thinking that in the wake of all the Fetterman stuff, it might be additionally scrutinized because the media is paying more attention to that stuff. Uh, the John Fetterman stuff being, I think, a, a an example of the candidates' team being very evasive about letting us have access to records that probably people should have had. He yeah. ended up winning very narrowly. It, it did seem then in his debate performance that he was extremely compromised and more compromised than you would have known from not yeah. having seen the medical records. I, mean, that I thought that was not was a, a transparent, particularly transparent moment for a, well, I, I a think, candidate. I but. think the, doing the speech was an incredibly transparent moment. Doing the debate was incredibly transparent. And many people argued at the time that he should have done it and questioned the thinking yeah, there. Well, know. he should have done it for the sake of the public's awareness. I'm saying from the standpoint of his campaign people, he should not have done yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, but, it feels like if the, if the trade-off is, maybe the trade-off was, do we release more medical information or do we let him just be seen by the public and they can judge themselves? Obviously, like I said at the time, I don't think debates factor in that much, and that, tended, that, that turned out to be the case. I mean, there was such a substantive difference between candidates there, but I think that that's really what, what this was about, not the individual right, per the se. The Republicans, they... Just, they squandered that one so utterly that I, it's, I still can't believe they bungled that one. Well, look, the, the reality is, and this was sentiment that was very common in Pennsylvania, that a lot of people have relatives who have experienced strokes, and the kind of uh, tone of some of the critique was seen as very insulting um, and diminishing of people's loved ones who had been in a similar situation. They had experience with what recovery was like and perhaps had more confidence in his ability to recover because of their proximity to it in their lives. And they saw it as part of a broader healthcare problem that was frankly kind of relatable. Uh, and that's I mean, you can relate to it without thinking it's appropriate right, for someone going to Right, but there's, but there's no alternative. The there was no alternative. Like yeah. the stroke happened, what, a week or whatever it was before the election date, the, the primary date. Now, Biden's in a different situation. I think similarly, a lot of people have empathy with the idea that you can be an older president. I certainly supported an older president last time around. I don't think it's just about his age. But when there are, when there's already kind of a low enthusiasm for Joe Biden, he was seen as many as a compromise candidate that people voted for for electability reasons. They just wanted Trump out. Um, when he has uh, failed to deliver on so many of his campaign promises, starting out with the, the reneging on the checks and then the student debt cancellation of it all and the poultry build back better. I mean, there are people who are going to be looking at this and combined, his record combined with potential health issues, combined with the fact that there are a lot of young Democrats waiting in the wings and say, do we really need to do this? Mm. Yeah, good point. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with you to discuss the biggest news and catch a few videos from us later this afternoon, starting at 4 o'clock. Yeah, that's fun. I like this new programming angle. If you're more of a later <laughs> late viewer and you like to see things in the evening time after work or as you're heading home, check out check out the 4 o'clock run. We're working extra hard for you <laughs> to bring you more content all day. That's right. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of that content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts and we're also on Roku and other streaming services so you have options no excuses to watch and listen take care we'll see you tomorrow bye-bye